is No Commons, and I'm your host, Janice Geary. I'm talking to experts across diverse fields about how they think the infamous idea of the tragedy of the commons can help tackle big problems of how we govern shared resources. I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Brian McKinnon today. Brian is the Vice Chair, Clinical Operations, and Associate Professor in the Department of Otolaryngology, uh, or Head and Neck Surgery, at the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston. As a practicing clinician, he specializes in hearing and balancing disorders, and his broad research interests include implantable hearing devices and cochlear implants, Meniere's disease, and temporal bone diseases. He has published dozens of clinical research papers and commentaries, including, of course, his 2018 paper, Balloon, Eustachian Tubulplasty, and the Tragedy of the Commons. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, is there anything that I missed, or did you want to add anything to that introduction? No, that was really quite good. I, I don't know if you want to add that uh, I have a master's of business administration, a master's of public health with a concentration of biostatistics. Perfect. So um, I'll get right into the topic of uh, your paper that we're chatting about today. And can you just provide a brief overview of what your editorial was about? So my editorial was about uh, a procedure called balloon dilation of the eustachian tube. It's a relatively new procedure. Uh, And uh, one of the reasons I wrote the paper had to do with the fact that this is a new procedure. and that new procedures um, have a risk of being uh, used or overused or overutilized early on. And the reasons for this are sort of mirrored. Uh, often uh, the, uh, this is a new toy for the surgeon, the patient. They want to try it because it's new and shiny. Sometimes it's a question that the provider can bill for it and get paid for it. Sometimes it's a question of how it should be used is still yet to be fully defined. And so uh, people are somewhat using it, uh, thinking that it's going to be great for problem A and discover it's really better off for B or C and A really wasn't as big of a hit as they thought it would be. Um, The other aspect is that we've had experience with other procedures, particularly balloon dilation of the sinuses, which became extremely popular and came under a great deal of criticism, including a 60-minute segment that suggested that it was really being used inappropriately for financial rewards. As this was a new technology, I wrote the editorial because I didn't want to see what happened to balloon dilation of the sinuses happen to balloon dilation of the eustachian tubes. I'm glad you brought that up because one of my questions was you sort of alluded to this controversy with sinoplasty and I was curious about, well, what happened there? So um, it's great that you detailed that. Just for my understanding and for those listening, what is balloon eustachian tubulplasty? Well, the eustachian tubes run from the back of the nose to the ears. And when you swallow or when you pop your ears, the air is going up through the eustachian tubes, reinflating the middle ear space. So the air inside the ear is what sits behind the eardrum. So when the sound hits the ear, the ear is able to vibrate and transmit that sound to the inner ear. If there is fluid behind the eardrum, well, the eardrum doesn't move as well and you have a hearing loss. Many people can develop eustachian tube dysfunction because of allergies or reflux or some other disorders. And sometimes it's temporary. Sometimes it's more chronic. 
some people don't respond to medications and you have to put a ventilation tube in the ear. And for some people, putting a ventilation tube in the ear causes problems because they may want to swim. And hence the water gets through the tube in the middle ear space and causes pain and causes infection. There are people who fly and who they may be perfectly fine walking around the airport, but as soon as they take off and land, they're in having great discomfort because they can't pop their ears very well. The balloon goes into the eustachian tube. As you inflate it, it changes the lining of the eustachian tube, the mucosa. And as this lining is changed, it's able to function more effectively and the eustachian tube function improves without the need for medications or ventilation tube. And the evidence right now is it seems pretty promising in, quite, in the right patient. So you kind of alluded to there's risks to the patient potentially if this um, technology is applied too frequently, but what are some of the risks if too many clinicians are using this procedure too frequently? So the primary risk is that you end up with a case where a physician does not place it in the right place. It goes outside the eustachian tube and traumatizes surrounding structures, what we call the false passage, where it doesn't go into the passage it should go in, a true passage, it goes through a false passage. Uh, the second issue are patients who look and seem like eustachian tube dysfunction, but the problem is not that the eustachian tube is not open enough, it's too open or patent. And if you're not careful, they could end up with a patient who now has severe symptoms of an overly patent eustachian tube, which can be very, very distressing to the patient and very difficult to manage. Obviously, you are a practicing physician and not an economist, um, although you did share your background uh, with your MBA, so you have some awareness of topics in um, that discipline. But what made you want to apply this economic lens of the tragedy of the commons at the time to tackle the issues of resource allocation that you were concerned about with this new technology? Well, just to give you some background, I come from a family where my father was a banker. My older brother is in business. My younger brother's a PhD in economics. And so around the McKinnon dining room table at dinner, uh, we talked business and we talked economics. And so this concept uh, of the tragedy of the commons was something that we had heard from my father at the table. And one of the reasons my father brought it up is in addition to him being in banking, he was also a town meeting member. And so as a town meeting member, as, as one of the elected officials in the town, he had to deal with how do you properly regulate and manage public spaces, baseball fields, tennis courts, what have you, to ensure that you know it, access was fair and they were appropriately maintained, et cetera. And so this was something that I learned basically as a kid at the kitchen table. It became a reasonable idea to use because it has been used in topics like this where you have something new, you have a, 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 a product, uh, a treatment that people adapt very quickly, they use it too much, and you end up with an overutilization and a real loss of value to uh, its, its use. So hence, as this was something that I saw a tragedy common with the use of balloon uh, management of sinus disease, this seemed like a pretty good fit for my argument. So to kind of think of it in resource governance terms, it's almost as though the, the number of times that this technology being applied is useful has a finite number. And if it gets you know, drawn on too often, then that kind of depletes the value of the the technology itself and sort of dilutes the outcomes and the value of the outcomes. And that's where the, the inevitable tragedy would come in with this sort of application. Mm -hmm. 
you know, as someone who grew up with listening to stories about the tragedy of the commons, what is your awareness of some of the controversies about that paper? Well, uh, it, it would, depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about Lloyd's original paper from the 1800s, that was strictly an economic paper. And, and that was about the time where you had the Enclosure Act in Northern England and Scotland, where the common areas were actually being enclosed. And a lot of the arguments were to improve the utilization of the resource. Hardin was, if I recall correctly, a biologist. And he was really looking at it from the point of view of population management. He was very concerned about overpopulation. Uh, and he published at the time of the Great Society when there was a big push to try to eliminate poverty. And his arguments were along the lines of concerns about overpopulation and, and the and the impact that maybe the welfare state may have on population. So it's it he carried a, an idea that was from the early 1800s into the mid to, to late 1960s. And some of the controversies are that it's an interesting story. It's a great metaphor. It actually may not be correct, but it's a great story. And some of the controversies are that we have lots of circumstances where you have publicly available resources that are not used or abused because of an agreement, either implicit or explicit, about each person's responsibility in terms of using that resource. Or you have regulations that make it clear, here are your responsibilities and here are your benefits when you use this public resource. And whether it's the internet, whether it's some other resource, that's where it's used. But the reality is that it's an, it was an interesting application of an idea that really was, was came from a different century and a different time. Uh, and so the real controversy is that it may be more of a metaphor than a real economic or biologic postulate. Yeah, I think the emphasis on what a sticky metaphor it was is a, is a really good way to think about how it's endured all of these years, despite, I guess, the lack of empiricism that went into it. It was just a real, simply put, sticky idea that a lot of people have used to draw attention to challenges that they've observed with uh, self-interest in commonly governed resources. Absolutely. One thing I'm wondering, because you, you kind of drew on that example of sinuplasty as being the that the thing to avoid with this new technology, I'm wondering how things went with sinuplasty. Did the procedure as it was practiced improve or is it still being overutilized? Unfortunately, it's both. Uh, there are some improvements in its utilization. Some of it is pragmatic, uh, is the fact that patients will say it doesn't work. You know, you've done this procedure on me twice or three times and I'm not getting any benefit from it. And so they want to do something else. That's part of it. Second of all, is that the reimbursements are changing. So there's less of an incentive for you to do a procedure if your margin, shall we say, is lower and lower the more you do it. And so there's that economic constraint on you to do a lot of these. And, and some of it is the fact that it's no longer the bright, shiny thing. Uh, it's no longer the, the, the new kid on the block. It's, it's become established. It's the published literature has helped define and refine who should be getting this procedure. And so what I would say is certainly there continues to be opportunities for utilization, but its utilization is had some refinement and some constraint on it as both payers begin to say, look, I'm not paying for this. We're not paying as much as we used to. 
and two, as patients come back and say, hey, it works great, or hey, I'm not getting benefit. And eventually patients will say, look, this doesn't work. I'm not getting benefit from it. So those are the things that are beginning to constrain the balloon side. In terms of balloon dilation of the eustachian tube, we just recently got codes for it, CPT codes, common procedure terminology codes. Those are, are, are new as of this year. Um, so this was a really new technology in 2018 when you wrote this editorial then. Yeah, so, so at 18, we, we were just beginning to think about writing up the documentation to submit to the AMA. AMA actually is the uh, group that has responsible for the common procedure terminology codes, the CPT codes that we bill everything. And uh, they have a very uh, well-designed, codified system of developing and publishing codes for procedures, requiring a certain level of literature, requiring you know, a certain level of descriptions of what, what does this procedure do, whatever it steps and what have you. And it, of course, takes time to make sure you have the literature and you have the information needed for the AMA to approve it. It then goes through a process where it's valued, and then it goes through a process where it's published. And then it goes through a process of whether payers will pay for it. And if payers don't pay for it, are patients willing to pay for it out of pocket if they find the value? Is whether or not patients are willing to pay for it what plays into the, um, the declining interest in the sinoplasty procedure then? Probably yes. The, um, the reality is that uh, the patients, out of, for other reasons unrelated to the editorial, unrelated to, to the procedures, you know, patients are bearing, in the U.S., are bearing more and more of the cost of their health care because of the adaption, adoption of the high deductible health plans. And that financial burden is certainly placing a constraint on patients with elective care. And some would say even, you know, urgent care is being delayed because of the cost share patients have. When you think about the regulatory or I guess just like common behaviors that either for physicians or uh, that patients are exhibiting, is there any concerted effort to change these behaviors to improve the way technologies like balloon eustachian tubaplasty are managed? Or is it sort of an organic thing that just happens over time? I, I want to say, at least in the U.S., it appears to be more of an organic process. Uh, while I'm not as fluent as I used to be, you know, the, the United Kingdom has nice uh, National Institutes of Clinical Excellence which makes a real concerted effort about publishing recommendations and guidelines and other such uh, criteria. The U.S. is not quite as good as that. The American Academy of Laryngology does a very good job of producing clinical practice guidelines, but there are limits to how many they can produce and, and how frequently they can be updated because like any organization, everything costs money. And, um, so I would say, at least currently, it appears to be more of an organic process, though I would not object to someone telling me, hey, it's actually not what you think. One thing I'm interested in how is how you might empirically get at these topics and actually study it. But from your perspective of someone who's done a lot of research and, and worked in, um, from what I understand, some administrative capacities, what are some, I guess, regulatory or policy approaches that you might take to improve the practice of these technologies? Well, I think the first thing that I've, I've always been taught is you need good data. We don't have a central uh, repository 
of good data very often about these procedures. Uh, now we do have clinical registries. The American Academy of Laryngology has a clinical, a, a certified or qualified clinical data registry that those practices in ENT that are participating can pool their data and we maybe use databases like that to ultimately do a big data analysis of impact. But right now we have a pretty, uh, a, a healthcare system that is not terribly unified in the US and trying to get big data can be very challenging. Uh, and so the biggest thing we could use is, is a more cohesive collection of data would really help. And that's something that we, I think over time, we probably will develop as we wanna improve health outcomes, but it's gonna be a long time to really achieve it. As a person who studies data sharing, I come across that challenge quite a lot. I'm sure you mm -hmm. can imagine. Mm -hmm. And improved data sharing, I think, would solve a lot of problems um, that we observe in deciding what medical interventions are most effective or where they should be implemented and all those things. And, you know, as a Canadian, one thing that's been surprising to me in talking more of these, you know, commons resource challenges with um, folks practicing medicine in the U.S. is that a lot of the challenges are actually pretty similar so, you know, we have a, a quote unquote single payer system, but it's actually a, a bunch of different single payers because they're all spread out, out across the provinces. Healthcare is provincially administrated. So it's still very difficult to get data across provincial boundaries. So we have some of those similar challenges. And, you know, of course, when it comes to cost, it's not the health insurance companies who are looking at the cost, but the, the provincial governments who are evaluating those things. So they have similar incentives. In, in that area as well. So it's interesting, even though the systems are so different, some of the resource management problems are very similar. I asked you about how things with sinoplasty might have changed since you referred to it in your paper, but I'm wondering, it's been almost three years since your editorial was published. How is the practice of BET going these days? So as far as I can tell, you know, with the new code and with the gradual adoption of the uh, the code by payers to reimbursement, I think we're starting to see a growth in the utilization of this procedure. It is um, somewhat technically challenging. Um, it is transitioning more from the, shall we say, the OR or ambulatory surgery center to the office, which will reduce the cost of the patients and improve the, the access to procedure versus a patient having to take a day off of work and have to go to the OR. And so I think we're seeing a gradual increase in the utilization of this technology. Whether it's going to go the same route of a balloon sinus surgery is a question. Uh, if I remember the numbers, about 10% of patients suffer from eustachian tube dysfunction, probably not as high as those who suffer from sinus disease. The evidence is about 50 to 60% of patients have a good outcome at a year. But we don't know what happens at three years or five years. And so there's a lot yet to be unveiled about this. But so far, it seems very promising. We also don't know what role this has in children. You know, many of the time we have small children get tubes in the ears because of their ear infections, because of eustachian tube dysfunction. We don't know if this is going to have a role in treating that so kids no longer need tubes. So there's a lot yet to be sorted out. Would you say that you, so you haven't quite observed the tragedy of the commons yet, but it might be too early to tell. Exactly. It may be too early to tell, or we may have learned our lesson. We'll have to see. I think that would be a really 
great research question for someone who's interested in studying resource management to take a closer look at that. That was uh, it for the main questions that I wanted to ask you. But is there anything else that you wanted to share about your editorial, the topic in general, or any kind of general thoughts about the tragedy of the commons? I mean, no, it was, uh, I, I enjoyed the chance to sort of, uh, this is an editorial I wrote to sort of express a thought of concern that I had and, and using some of my background from uh, my MBA, my, my experience as a kid at the kitchen dinner table, as well as my, some of my training in, in, with an MPH and with a concentration of biostatistics. So it's kind of fun to put it into a very different format than something that can be sometimes as dry as paper and even be a little bit, uh, a little bit more light than it would be in typical research. In terms of, of what I'm working on now, I'm still working on issues like this. Uh, I work a lot with, with medical students and residents trying to see if we can find data sources to start answering some questions. We've, we've uh, looked at the, what's called NISQIP, the National Surgical Quality Improvement uh, Database to see what we can use that uh, for looking at some of the questions we have, at least in my field of, of ear surgery. Uh, there are some other databases we're getting access to as well to sort of begin to see if we can use big data to address these. I spend a lot of time with my residents teaching them, you know, data is only as good as the information that's put into it. And you've got to be very careful understanding data. You've got to be extremely careful how you interrogate data because the, the numbers uh, may not lie, but they sure as heck can mislead you. And so that's what I'm working on, focusing on right now. Well, I think that lesson is a fantastic place to end off on and certainly one that I, I hope more people would take note of. Well, thank you. So, well, and thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed chatting about uh, your editorial. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more, you can find links to articles and other things we mentioned in the episode at nocommons.ca forward slash podcast. You can also find me and the show on Twitter at at nocommons. If you'd like to suggest a paper to feature, drop me a note on my website contact page. And of course, please consider subscribing to No Commons wherever you get your podcasts.